from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Octavia Hughes, host of today's episode. Today I am joined by the head of our Brussels office, Camino Mortero Martinez, and senior economist, Sandra Tordois. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Hi, Octavia. Thanks so much. Uh, very well. Hi, great to be here. Doing, doing well. Thanks. So the Spanish general election held on July 23rd has left the country at a political impasse, surprising many. Meanwhile, in the Netherlands, the alliance of four centre-right and liberal parties has collapsed, triggering a new election in November. So lots to discuss today. Let's start with the results from the ballot box in Spain. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez called a snap election after a poor performance from the left in May's local and regional elections, which we discussed here on the podcast as well. Pundits and journalists alike were quick to link these results to a broader shift to the right across the continent. But Camino, in your recent article, you were quite clear that a distinction should be made between the right in Spain and what people think of as far-right populism in Europe. Could you start by elaborating on why the appeal of Vox actually has very little to do with traditional conservative values? And why did we see so many of these headlines bemoaning the rise of the far right and Vox when polls actually predicted the party would lose 21 of its 52 seats? Thanks, Octavia. Your last question is actually something that I've been wondering myself. Why did we have so many analysts from outside of Spain and also so many journalists sort of hailing the rise of far-right Vox when we knew from the polls that the party was going to lose seats? And it actually ended up losing 19 of its 52 seats that it had from 2018. So the obvious answer to that question would be that it is much more sexy in a way to talk about the rise of the far right and this idea that, you know, I'm going to mention Franco, which I shouldn't do because I tell people off all the time, dictator Franco from Spain. This idea that we... Spaniards haven't had a proper far-right party since Franco died, and that this was no longer going to be the case with Vox entering into government. I think this narrative basically forgot one very important factor in this election, which is that the reason why Vox was slated to be close to government or entering government was not because the party was going up. As I said before, the party was actually going down. It's because there is no center anymore in Spain. And this is the story, in my view. The story of these elections is not about Vox. It's not about the far right, the far left, or you name it. It's about how the center right, the liberal party, Ciudadanos, collapsed. They decided to withdraw altogether after the regional elections when they had really, really bad results. But also, it's the story of how both conservatives, the PP party, and socialist Sanchez-Pesoe's party have become much more radicalized. 
and they have moved away from the center in a way that even if they agree on more things than they disagree on, and especially even if they agree more in between themselves, that they would agree with any of their potential coalition partners, whether it's Vox on the right or all this collection of smaller, more regionalist parties on the left, they are not able to govern together and they are not able to allow the other to govern just by abstaining or having a minority government. So I think the story of this election was about that. It's not about Vox. If I have to make a bet, and I have been quite right in these elections, I must say, <laughs> I think the bet would be that Vox um, is going to pretty much lose even more seats if there is a repeat election in Spain. And even if it's not, I don't think that Vox is going to be here to stay. Very interesting to hear that. Pre-election polls also put the Conservative Party, which you mentioned, consistently ahead. But this wasn't the case on election day. The Conservatives and Vox collectively didn't get enough seats to form a government. Were the polls just wrong and why? Well, Octavia, I'm not a pollster and there's been so much chatter about this and about whether the polls were wrong, whether... People interpreting the polls were wrong. I personally saw internal polls the day of the vote from both parties, and they were absolutely insane. Like one of them was giving an absolute majority to the PP party, and the other one was giving a very, very big majority to the PSOE party. My particular view on this, and once again, I'm not a pollster, so I'm not going to discuss the data. My particular view is that Vox, not being a traditional far right party, as you were asking before, it is a very different party from other European far-right parties in the way that it owes much more to a backlash against Catalonia's failed independence bid in 2017 than it does to questions of identity, or gender equality, gay rights, and all these kind of things. So insofar as Vox stayed in its lane in a way, so with a message on you know national unity, law and order, the constitution and all these kind of things. They were not making a lot of noise and that was sort of okay for the PP party. And they were less scary in a way to Spain's mostly progressive and rather moderate society. This changed when Vox decided at some point for a reason that I'm still to be explained that it was going to pivot to some very radical messages that you can find in far-right parties elsewhere in Europe. So anti-gay, anti-women's rights, anti-migrant. And these are messages that I have no clue who in Spain would be supporting because there is no national consensus around this topic. These topics are not important for Spanish society at the moment. I'm not saying that they will not become important at some point, but they are not winning any voters right at the moment. So once this happened, the left very, very cleverly was able to mobilize a lot of previously unenthusiastic voters or even voters who might have been tempted to vote for Pepin by saying, you know, if you do this, we are going to go back 20, 30 years in rights in Spain. And this scare many, many people. And even if, in my opinion, and it, this remains my opinion, this was a very fringe part of Vox that was pushing this message. Even though we saw how this was able to swap the votes of many voters at the end of the campaign. And also because of the way that, honestly, both Sanchez and Fejo handled the campaign very poorly. It was always clear to me at the end of the campaign that they were not going to be winning as much as they thought. So to me, the polls, once again, the story is not the polls. The story is how 
Spanish society got mobilized at the end of what should have been a very straightforward campaign because of the mistakes, in my view, that both Feijo and Vox did at the end of this campaign. So what is going to happen now? Who will be the next prime minister of Spain? Well, Octavia, if I knew who was going to be the next prime minister of Spain, I would be earning a lot of money and going on a speaking tour. I'm afraid I don't, but I can give you some scenarios and some of the things I think might happen. So obviously the first scenario would be whether Feijó, the leader of the PP, Conservative Party, will have any option to become prime minister. I think numerically this is almost impossible. The only way for this to happen would be for Feijó to sort of try to form governments with the support of Vox and with PSOE abstaining. And this, as I said before, witnessed a very bruising campaign. We've got two very polarized mainstream parties, which are unlikely to cooperate with one another. So I think this is not going to happen. Now, the second scenario, second option would be for Sanchez, current prime minister, now acting prime minister, to go for a second term, right? And he will not have the numbers to succeed the first time around, because for that, he would need to have an absolute majority of parliament, which he doesn't have. But if he tries for a second time, which the Spanish constitution allows to do 48 hours after the first try, he might be able to just win enough votes to become prime minister. The only problem, and I think it's a big problem, if he wants to become prime minister with the current numbers, Pedro Sánchez will need Catalan independent leader Carlos Puigdemont, who is wanted by Spanish justice and lives in Belgium, to instruct its party to vote for Sánchez. At least two of his, his, his MEPs need to say, yes, we want Pedro Sánchez to be prime minister. Now, this will probably entail Sanchez making a number of concessions to Puigdemont's party. He himself, Puigdemont, has said he wants to be pardoned, he wants to come back to Spain, and he wants to be granted a, a unilateral referendum of independence in Catalonia. Now, the first question might happen. Sanchez has pardoned jail Catalonian independence leader before. The second would be more difficult because the Spanish constitution does not allow for a unilateral referendum of independence. So I think this is another scenario that has little chances to happen. And if it does happen, it will probably mean a quite a weak government that will not last long because it will be depending on a lot of partners which can make the government collapse quite easily. So the third scenario and the one that I think might be more likely and also might be better when we think about a country that needs a stable government that can also you know, be powerful in Europe and these kind of things that we will discuss later would be to have new elections. And these new elections, I believe, would probably yield more votes for both PSOE and PP, which would make it easier, in my view, for either of them to find a more reasonable way to cooperate with their partners and to make the country a little bit more governable. Now, repeat elections are not ideal and they will not be easy, but I think they are going to be better for the country and for Europe than the current situation where the country is quite difficult to govern. Thanks, Camino. Let's turn to the Netherlands now. Has the collapse of the four-party alliance been drawn out over some time, or was this a surprise to the Dutch people as well? And Sana, could you explain why the coalition fell out? Thanks, Octavia, and thanks, Camino, for sketching the Spanish situation so well. I think on the Dutch side, it's a bit of both. It was a sort of strike out of nowhere, 
and drawn out at the same time. So the decision to pull the rug came out of nowhere. And I spent quite a bit of time in the Netherlands just before the election to try to understand their EU policies better. And it really wasn't much in the air. But at the same time, this government had been limping politically quite a bit. It was a coalition of quite different parties. Margrethe's fourth government, 13 years as prime minister, so his party, the biggest one, a sort of liberal conservative party mixed with Christian Democrats and a very pro-European social liberal party, the Democrats 66. And so there was some sort of inherent instability in it. But what was really dragging them down was a, an intractable conflict with protesting farmers that's been drawn out for quite some time now over nitrogen emissions. The Netherlands is the second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world. And it's really quite just mind-boggling if you think about it because of extremely intensive and admittedly very high productivity mechanized agriculture. And it's creating a lot of nitrogen emissions which are against all sorts of national environmental regulation. And the Dutch courts have dictated that the government needs to get serious about reducing nitrogen emissions, and that's put them on a crash course with farmers and their lobby. And so there's been a lot of protests. Sometimes farmers have tried to put the country almost to a standstill by putting loads of agricultural machinery on highways and the like. And they've also founded their own political party, which took away a lot of Senate seats in a March election, which gave this government an even smaller minority in the Senate. They already had a minority, but it became even more difficult for them to work in the Senate. And so there was structural instability in the coalition, but still the ultimate decision to call it quits came a bit out of nowhere. It was related to a spat about migration. Some of the parties in the government felt that they needed to put in place an emergency break for asylum seek family reunification. And the more liberal parties and members of the coalition felt that that was a, a red line that they couldn't cross. And then it seems like the prime minister made a bet that he would play hardball on this topic to placate his party. And he may have even bet that if the government would collapse, he could run again, being still a very popular politician at the head of the biggest party. But the bet basically backfired when members of parliament made it clear to him or he got the sense that he may even be subjected to a vote of no confidence, which would oust him as prime minister, even of the caretaker government that they are now. And so he decided to step down from politics. And that set in motion a sort of whole cascade of senior leaders leaving national politics, including of the Democrat 66. Finance Minister uh, Kaag also left politics, will not rerun. The head of the Christian Democrats, Wopke Hoekstra, foreign minister, former finance minister also, he also bowed out. And so the landscape was completely cleared out. And then... Commission Vice President and Green Tsar Timmermans decided to return to the Netherlands from Brussels to head up the newly joined list of the Greens and the Social Democrats. So there's been a lot of movement over the span of a few weeks. So as you've said, with Ruta out after 13 years as Prime Minister, how do you see the dynamic leading up to the November Dutch elections? Who's likely to fill that void? Will it be Timmermans? And what are the polls telling us at the moment? So one thing to note about the Dutch political landscape, certainly in the period past, is that it's extremely fragmented. There's no threshold like you have in a country like Germany, for example. So there are many small parties in the parliament and the votes are sort of scattered all across different parties. And elections in the past have had different dynamics. Some have seen a sort of continuation of that fragmentation. And in other cases, there's been a coalescing of voters on different parts of the spectrum around particular parties. And so it's very difficult to say really where this will go. What's clear is that Timmermans is the most senior 
person in the race. He's the one with the most executive experience, if you will, both in Brussels and at the national level. He was successful as foreign minister in the past. And so in a sense, he's sort of the big player in the room now, now that the field has cleared out and new political talent will replace the other leaders. And so it's difficult to say how they will fare. But what's clear is that the Greens and the Social Democrats joining forces and bringing in Timmermans from Brussels is for now giving them quite a significant surge in the polls. And so the three parties that seem to be ahead, and they have more or less equal polling across the three of them, are Rutte's uh, party, the VVD, this new green-left combination, and the Farmers' Party I mentioned before. And so those are the sort of three main contenders, and then some of the other votes will be split across the other parties. And so I think the situation is quite volatile. It could that the Timmermans wins, and by winning in the Dutch case, it simply means being the largest, but having nowhere near a majority in this fragmented landscape. But that usually is there's a sort of unwritten rule that you then get to become prime minister and at least take the initiative to form a government. But that could be quite challenging for him because he might need up to three coalition partners again, uh, maybe even more. And he will probably need to convince the Christian Democrats and Rutte's VVD to join him in the government if he doesn't want to rely on some of the more extremist parties. And so these coalition negotiations could either be easier than last time, which were the longest in history, or they could be very drawn out and difficult as well. Thanks, Sander. If we look at Spain and the Netherlands now in the context of the EU over, say, the past decade, how have their positions evolved? Sander, maybe you could start. Right. So I wrote a piece for uh, Agenda Publica of El País, trying to think through the ripple effects for the EU. And I think they're, they're quite significant, especially if you think it together with the impasse in Spain that Camino laid out so well. In a sense, losing one of the two countries for the time being, and by losing, I mean being politically distracted and not having an electoral mandate with a caretaker government. Losing one of the two would probably not be a big deal for Europe. But having the two players out is significant. And I think in part that's because the Dutch had played a rather significant role behind the scenes in the last few years. In a sense, they had become the deal broker in the EU from the more frugal side, so from the countries that prefer not to put too much money into the EU, not to do too much sharing of competences per se, but to do so in a targeted way and to look for ways where by different methods you can cooperate. And that used to be the role that Germany to some extent played, with the Dutch heading up the so-called New Hanseatic League in the latter part of the 2010s, which was a coalition of frugal smaller countries that were strongly opposed to, for example, fiscal capacity for the Eurozone and also on other financial and economic topics. And even enlargement could be the a bit more of the skeptical camp. And that allowed Germany, and that was the Germany under Angela Merkel, to play the role of the reasonable deal broker vis-a-vis -vis France and Southern Europe. And in a way, the Dutch and Germans had swapped places. And with these latest governments, the Dutch under Mark Rutte, who had been prime minister for 13 years, that gave him a lot of stature in the European arena and gave him a lot of experience. He had learned, I think, over time after the downing, for example, of the MH17 over Ukraine, where many Dutch lives were lost. He experienced a lot of European solidarity. And so he had become, in a sense, much more engaged in Europe and much more seeing Europe as a place for him to solve political problems and built up warm ties to Macron, built up warm ties to some Eastern European leaders and countries. And he was using that together with this relatively pro-European government and his coalition partners to push European initiatives, including accelerated weapons transfers to Ukraine. 
And most strikingly, if you think of this new Hanseatic party of no history that was there, the Dutch paired up with Spain, which is a high debt country, to lay what became the blueprint for the ongoing fiscal rule reform, which curbs budgets and deficits in the EU, to try to be the sort of middle ground around which the whole EU could coalesce. And so that was really a sort of testimony to this new Dutch approach of being this deal broker, of reaching out to countries that they didn't use to pair up with. And so that kind of falls away now because this government's out, Rutte is out, they will be a caretaker government, they won't change positions, but it's unlikely they will push as much and take as much risk without a new electoral mandate. And so in that sense, the Dutch will be a bit missing in action. And we're in a phase where the Franco-German relation is particularly bad after many spats and fights over energy, over the Germans buying American weapons instead of European-built weapons or French weapons. And so we're left a bit with the void. The Franco-German relationship is not working well. We had the Dutch stepping in from the frugal side. We had Spain also playing a kind of stabilizing role, the two of them working together. And so in that sense, I think the consequences are quite significant. Camino, could you speak a little bit about Spain's position? I mean, they're currently holding the EU presidency. Has their opportunity to influence the EU been scuppered by political deadlock? I think the presidency will be fine. I think that's not a problem. It was always going to be fine, regardless of whether or not we're going to change governments for two reasons. So the first one is that the presidency, and I know this is unpopular, is not that important. It's a modest responsibility and it is very difficult for a presidency to actually influence a lot of what the European Union does. We've got countries holding a presidency with caretaker governments like Belgium in 2010 and the presidency was fine. We have had very recently a major country going through elections while holding the presidency and that was France and that was a very good presidency as well. And we've got other examples of countries going through political turmoil at the same time as holding a presidency. And that's the second reason why the presidency would be fine. It's because it's designed in a way that it will not sort of stop if elections happen or a government collapses or things like that. So that's for the presidency. When it comes to Spain's influence in Europe, as Sander was very rightly saying, Spain will be distracted for some time, whether Sanchez manages to form governments, whether there are elections. It will take some time. It will also take away some of the reputational gains that Spain has made in recent times by trying to be a little bit more assertive. I'm not saying that Spain has changed so much that it has become the most assertive country in Europe or that it's, you know, going to make a big difference whether or not Spain is in this discussions at the moment. But it was becoming a country that was trying to play a more important role. And Sander was saying, for example, looking for different alliances and on different things, trying to shape some of the European Union's policies as well. And thinking of energy policy, Spain has been very important. And he was trying, he was trying uh, to at least do something a little bit different from what the government of Mariano Rajoy was doing, which was basically withdrawing from the European Union altogether. So it's going to be a pity for Madrid, who sort of hope to shine during the presidency, to be busy with something else back home. But I think most importantly, it's going to be a pity for the European Union itself, because not only do we have a very dysfunctional Franco-German relationship at the moment. I mean, we've been through this many times. France and Germany have their ups and downs, and this is probably one of the downs. But it's also that Berlin is extremely focused on their own 
coalition in fighting. And then if you think about other European capitals, you've got Rome trying to find its feet with Meloni's government, which also has its own problems in Europe. Warsaw is at the moment fighting Brussels on anything and everything. So debates about many things in Europe are basically dominated by Paris and by Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but what I think is that because of COVID and the war in Ukraine, the European Union has become much more multipolar, right? There is no just one single capital sort of setting the agenda. And the European Union is also navigating a very complicated and divided world. So this autumn, we're going to have discussions on, as Sander rightly pointed out, fiscal rules, but also on very important things like China, migration, enlargement, and treaty reform, governance reform, you name it. And it is going to be a pity for Madrid in particular, and obviously for the Netherlands as well, to be absent from these discussions because Brussels and EU capitals at the moment need as many voices as they can have in order to navigating an increasingly complicated world. If I may just jump in, I think this is a super important big picture that Camino is, is painting because it's not just these two countries. It's more the context around it that made the Dutch and arguably the Spanish, as we laid out, quite important stabilizing forces. And I would make the distinction here between ongoing business, which I think will be fine in the EU because the EU is a legislative machine. The presidency, as Camino laid out, will be run professionally and they will get some things done. But there are some real big strategic and pressing strategic challenges on the agenda along all the, the topics that Camino mentioned. And making decisions there requires much more political innovation. It requires coalition building, looking ahead, making tough calls, and doing those kind of big things is much more difficult in the landscape as it's now panning out. So I would make that fundamental distinction between ongoing business, implementation of things that have already been agreed, versus sort of the big picture long-term challenges, where I would expect the EU to be much more in a situation of slow progress or even still made up until the European elections of next year. Great. I think that's a really interesting point to end on, something to think about there. So thank you very much, Camino and Sander, for joining me for this week's Centre for European Reform podcast. And thank you also to our listeners at home. If you'd like to stay informed on all things Europe, subscribe to the CER. Goodbye and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.